You're listening to a sermon by Hope Bible Church Niagara. We believe in unapologetic preaching, unashamed adoration of Jesus, unceasing prayer, unafraid witness, and uncommon community. If you have yet to do so, we would love to have you join us for worship in God's Word on Sunday mornings. For more information, visit us online at hopeniagara.ca. Thanks for listening. Good morning, Hope Bible Church. That was very mediocre. Good morning, Hope Bible Church, Niagara. Oh, that's what it was. I forgot to say Niagara. You're like, who are we? We're not Hope Bible Church. We're Hope Bible Church, Niagara. There we go. All right. I got it. I got it. Well, before we get into uh, the preaching of God's Word, just a a, uh, few things here to bring to your attention to remind you again tonight. We have a prayer and praise at 6 p.m. tonight, and I'm looking forward to seeing you here. And if you're wondering, what is that all about? What are we going to do? It's prayer and praise. That's what we're going to do. We're going to pray. We're going to praise the Lord. But also, too, I happen to know that afterward, there's going to be refreshments. So, I mean, that's encouraging, too, right? Absolutely. Is it? You're in for that? You're in for that? You don't have to say. If you're super spiritual, you can just leave and don't eat the refreshments, but... Uh, the rest of us will enjoy that. So we're looking forward to that for sure. So that is tonight at 6 p.m. Also, uh, I want to ask you this question. I want to ask you, who are you inviting to Christmas Eve? Who, who are you inviting to come Christmas Eve? I'm not asking you if you're inviting somebody. I'm asking you who is it that you are inviting to Christmas Eve. We have three services at 2, 4, and 6 p.m. You say, why are we having three services? The reason is to give capacity so that you can invite people in your life to come and to be with us here on Christmas Eve. Here's, here's the truth, okay? Here's the truth. It is, there is no easier time of year to invite somebody to church than at Christmas, especially Christmas Eve. Like, it's, it's never easier. Like, Easter is a close second, but for lots of people in your life, this will be the easiest time coming up this week to invite them to come and to be part of the worship service. And maybe you've got someone on your hockey team that you're thinking about, somebody at work, a neighbor, maybe across the street from you. Maybe you've got somebody renting your basement. Maybe you've got a relative that's on your heart. Who is it that you are going to invite? And maybe you're like, well, Ross, I got a real dilemma. I got somebody in my life who can come at two and somebody else who can only come at six. Awesome. Come to both services. In fact, come to all three if you like. If you're bringing people, then that is phenomenal. So I just really want to strongly encourage you to do that. We have little cards at the back that you can give out as invitations, just little business card size of invitation that you can give to people, get it out in social media, that sort of thing, whatever, whatever you got to do. Bring people here because here's the thing. We don't want to just fill this place up. We want people to hear the good news about Jesus. And uh, Christmas is a great opportunity to do that, okay? So who are you inviting? And here, here's the thing. Let's be praying. Let's be praying this week that God would give us divine appointments, okay? That certain people that God would bring right into our faces, right into our path, and also that God would give us a special boldness to invite and to reach out to people in our lives, okay? So looking forward to that. Christmas Eve, two, four, and six are the services this coming Saturday. It's only six days away. Are you excited? I am so excited. Okay, one other thing that I want to uh, talk to you about is our Christmas offering, and um, remind you, of course, that that is going on. As Nathaniel said, you have up until the 31st of December if you want uh, your, your Christmas offering to be counted toward the Christmas offering. Of course, you can give any time, but if you want it to be counted for the Christmas offering, you have until the 31st. I said to you a week ago that uh, someone in our Hope family of churches had contacted us to say that they were committed to uh, um, giving a matching a donation 
of up to $200,000. So uh, for every dollar we give, they will give a dollar up to $200,000, which is tremendous. Such an encouragement, isn't it? But here's the thing, it gets better, it gets better. So this week we are contacted by somebody else who said that they want to add $50,000 to that. So dollar for dollar, every dollar you give, up to $250,000 will be matched. And here, but it gets better still. Today, today, someone else came to me wishing again to, be remain, to remain anonymous and wants to add another $50,000 to that. So here's the deal, Hope Church Niagara. We have matching commitments of matching donations for our Christmas offering of up to a total of $300,000. So for every dollar you give, up to $300,000, we have uh, some uh, brothers and sisters in the Lord who are committed to matching that. So um, here's what we're thinking. We're thinking that, you know, we were praying coming in that this Christmas offering would be an opportunity for us to take a big bite out of the mortgage that we're taking on. And it seems in God's kindness that we're going to be able to take a bigger bite than we ever thought. And part of the reason that these folks are giving is, first and foremost, they want to give as unto the Lord, and we receive it as from the Lord. But also, too, they just they want to encourage you as well. We know that these days, for many of you, are very challenging financially. Very challenging. It's difficult. And as much as you want to give as unto the Lord, you've also got to give as unto your fridge and you're the roof over your head, and you, it's, it's difficult. So these brothers and sisters want to encourage you. What an encouragement to know that every dollar, by God's grace, that I give toward this offering will be doubled. Okay, and so, so let that encourage you as you pray, as you seek the Lord, and uh, we are so grateful. And, and today is Sunday, tomorrow is Monday. God willing, by Tuesday, the building we are sitting in will belong to us. So it's going through. The deal is scheduled to go through, be official on Tuesday. And so we are, we're excited about that. Now, please pray. We, we have, there's no reason for us to think that it won't happen. But when you're in the ministry, when you're serving the Lord, you also know you've got an enemy. And uh, so we just, just pray that the Lord would, by his grace, he would help us to see it through. And that uh, by Tuesday night, we will be uh, in the building that has our name on it, not just on the building, but actually on the paperwork, on the legal side of it. Isn't it great? Are you encouraged at what God is doing? Absolutely. Amen. Me too. Well, I'm no expert on the subject, but I know enough to know that if you had the choice, you would never have your child born in the place where Jesus was born. It was not a great place to have a baby. Now, about uh, over 20 years ago, about 23 years ago or so, I had the privilege of traveling to Israel and uh, uh, touring many different places that we read about in Scripture. And one of those very memorable places was visiting uh, the town of Bethlehem and going and standing in the place where it is believed that Jesus was born. And having been there, I can tell you, it's not the place you'd want to have your baby. Now, now, actually, today, today, it's a there's a church built over it called the Church of the Nativity, and I got some pictures actually, uh, some sh- some show and tell here. Now, these two pictures on the right, those photo credit to Ashley Mose. Ashley Mose, one of our, our sisters here in our church, she was in Israel just a few weeks ago, and uh, she she took these pictures, shared them with me. You can see what it looks like on the outside. There's a door you got to kind of duck down to get into to get into the building. Uh, I think it's called the Door of Humility. I think, but anyway, when you go down under the church. 
church, it's a, it's a grotto or kind of like an, an old cave, and uh, this is what you see when you get down there. It kind of, to me, it kind of looks like a fireplace, kind of, but it isn't a fireplace. It's a, there's a mantle, and there's a 14-point star there on, the, on the, the stone, and it is believed that this is the place where Jesus was born. In fact, there's an inscription in Latin over the mantle place saying, here of the Virgin Mary, Jesus was born. So this is what it looks like today. Now, 2,000 years ago, it looked markedly different, but it was no better of a place then to have a baby. The reality is, is that 2,000 years ago, it was in all likelihood a temporary shelter for animals belonging to visitors from out of town who were visiting Bethlehem. And as you stand in a place like that, you can't help but think, oh, if only these walls could speak, what story they would tell but despite the wonder of that, it's still not a place you'd want to have a baby. Uh, yeah, they wrapped Jesus in swaddling cloths and they laid him in a manger. But you know what the manger is, right? It's, it's a feeding trough. It's a feeding And the hay was in there and he, I'm sure he was safe and, and it was soft. But it's not exactly an item. If, you're having, if you have a baby at home, you're getting ready to have a baby, you're not fixing to put a manger in the nursery. Let's face it. It's not, it's not ideal. But it's where Jesus was born, essentially in a cave. And as I think about that, those less than ideal surroundings where God the Son came into the world, it, it highlights to me, it emphasizes to me the wonder that Jesus came at all, let alone the, the manner in which he did. I mean, taking on humanity, born into poverty, dying with such indignity, all to save us. And that's, that's what my message this morning is really all about. It's a message about, really about perceiving, grasping the wonder of the greatness of what God did that first Christmas. I find, and maybe you do too, that it's very easy to have the wonder of what it is that we are remembering and celebrating this time of year. It's so easy for me just to lose sight of that, or, or even to not really gain sight of that in the first place. There is among us often a kind of dullness of heart that... We just need, we need so need God to stir our hearts and to open the eyes of our hearts to see something of what it is that he has done and who it is that we're worshiping, to refresh us in the amazement and the wonder and the joy of our Savior Jesus and what God has done in and through him. And that's really my goal today. At the, at the end of my sermon, our, our service will really culminate today in celebration of communion. We'll participate in worshiping the Lord together in a way that he's prescribed for us. And um, I really, really, my sermon this morning is designed to prepare us to do that, to worship the Lord, to have fresh wonder, to not just go through the Christmas story, but rather to be amazed at the goodness and the greatness of God. So the title of my sermon today is, What's So Great About Christmas?, and to answer that question, we're going to look at one verse, okay, just one verse. Everybody loves a sermon, it's just on one verse. Oh, this will be a short one today, yes, no, no don't, don't bet on it, but uh, we're going to go to one verse, and it's in 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 9. If you turn there with me, please, to 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, the title again, What's So Great About Christmas? Now, the funny thing is, is that when you come to this passage, the, the, the broader context is not really about Christmas. He gets to Christmas. 
But actually, the, the context here is one in which Paul is writing to the Corinthian believers, and he's calling on them to to follow through on a pledge they made, a promise that they made that they would send money to help out the Christians in Jerusalem. See, the Christians in Jerusalem were super poor, and they were going through a really difficult time. And one of the things that Paul the Apostle and others were doing at this time was they were going around to the different churches and letting them know about the great need in Jerusalem and asking believers to prayerfully give toward alleviating their need. So they went to different churches and told them about this, including Corinth. And when the Corinthian believers heard about what was happening in Jerusalem, they're like, we, we, gotta, we wanna do something. And they, you can imagine they got together and they prayed and they talked together and they agreed together, they committed together to collect an offering and to send it to Jerusalem to help out the Christians there. But what happened was, well, it's something that happens to you and me sometimes when we commit to doing something. You ever had that experience where sometimes you just don't get around to doing it? Like maybe you didn't mean to, and it's not like you were lying or faking it before. It's just you made the commitment and then just way leads on to way and it didn't happen. Well, that's what happened in Corinth. They agreed together. They committed to help out that church in Jerusalem, but they hadn't done it yet. And what Paul is doing here in our, in our chapter, in the context of our verse, is he is not only reminding them of the fact that they made the commitment, but he is encouraging them and inspiring them to do it. You'll see what I mean. I'm going to read from verse 1 just so you can get the context, but we're going to land and focus on verse 9. So look, 2 Corinthians 8 and verse 1. Notice what Paul says. He says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Just to pause here for a second. The church in Macedonia, the churches in Macedonia were very poor churches themselves. They didn't have a whole lot, but they had heard about what was going on in Jerusalem and they wanted to contribute as well. And you can almost imagine what the conversation might have been like. You know, they catch wind of what's going on down in Jerusalem. We love these believers. We want to help them. You can imagine Paul the Apostle saying to them, hey, listen, listen. Listen, you guys are so poor. You have so little yourselves. Just, just focus on what you're doing here. There's other churches more capable and a better financial place to give. So, so just, just let them do it. And the believers in Macedonia say, no, Paul. No, don't rob us of the joy of giving, of, of showing our love. We want to do this. We may not have much, but what we have, we want to give. That's kind of the sense that I get of what was going on there, these generous hearts. And we might wonder, why were they so generous? Why would they feel that way? Well, we read on. Verse 5, he says, And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. Which, by the way, loved ones, is how we should do all our giving. First, my heart is for the Lord, and then to his work and the ministry. Verse 6, accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. So Titus is showing up with the offering bag saying, okay, folks, it's time, right? Verse 7, but as you excel in everything, 
in faith and speech and knowledge and all earnestness and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Don't you love how diplomatic Paul is? The Peterborough translation where I'm from, you'd say, get her done. It's time to get her done. Let's go. That's what he's saying here. Verse 8. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your, your love also is genuine. See, it's about love. Now, where's the motivation for this? Here it is, verse 9. Why would believers give generously? Verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, in this verse, that verse 9, I suggest to you there's at least four realities, four realities, four facts, you could say, about Christ and his coming into the world that help us to see what's so great about Christmas. Number one, the first fact I want you to see, the first reality is this, is that Jesus is a glorious person. He's a glorious person. What's so great about Christmas? The person who came is what's great about Christmas. He's a glorious person. Notice what the text says about him, firstly. You know, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich. In what sense does Paul mean that Jesus was rich? You know, when we think of somebody being rich or wealthy, we often think of, you know, having lots of money. And with that, maybe they drive a nice car, and they wear some nice clothes, and they live in a beautiful home, and they've got maybe some influence and power that often comes with, with wealth. But I would say to you, while that's naturally what we tend to think of when we hear that word rich, somebody being rich or wealthy, it's, that's actually a far inferior kind of wealth when compared to what Paul is actually talking about when he says that Jesus was rich. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. That wealth that Jesus had, that richness, is talking about his greatness and glory and who he really is. Far more wealthy, far, more, far much more splendor than just having cash and stuff. No, his person is glorious. He was, he was at the Father's right hand with, with, with uh, the heavens and the earth as his footstool. Like that kind of wealth. There's a few passages of scripture, I think, that help us to, to see this better. How about Colossians 1, 16 and 17? Notice what it says, talking about Jesus. By him, notice, all things were created. So he's the maker of everything. So everything that there is, he's the creator. By him, all things were created. That's the kind of wealth we're talking about. The one from whom all things come. By him all things were created, and all things were created through him, and notice, for him. So he's the purpose for everything. Like, like all the, we think of wealthy, influential, even famous people in our world, and all the attention that they get, and all the accolades, and all the adoration that's poured out on them. That actually really is ultimately, truly owing to Jesus. It's all for him. He created all things for the glory of God, and it's God's desire that the Son would be glorified and magnified. So, so there's people that have exceptional skill in our eyes, but think about what the, the Scripture tells about Jesus. He created all things. All created things were created through him and for him. So we fawn over and get excited because somebody can shoot a piece of rubber into a net. Wow. She can sing really good. Oh. 
He's a tremendous actor. <gasps> wow. But what is that really compared to the person of Jesus Christ? And none of those people have any of that outside of him, whether they know it or not. That's the kind of rich wealth that Paul's talking about. All things are created through him and for him. He is before all things. And notice, in him all things hold together. Let that sentence, let that phrase land on you. In him all things hold together. Everything, he sustains everything that there is. The fact that there is anything, the fact that, there, that we are here, the fact that we are breathing, the fact that there is life is owing ultimately to the sustaining power of Jesus. That is the kind of wealth, the kind of rich that he's talking about here. His glorious person. Or how about Ephesians chapter 1, what it tells us there. That Christ is enthroned, notice, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named. There's some big names out there. But his name is above all those names in importance and worth. Above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. He is enthroned. He rules over all things. Or how about, how about what we read about in the Gospels? As students of the Bible refer to it as the transfiguration of Jesus. This moment in time in his life and ministry where for a moment, it's as though the curtain was pulled back and those who were there got a glimpse, a momentary glimpse into something of the true glory and splendor and majesty of Jesus. Luke tells us about it. Luke chapter 9, it says, and as he was praying, talking about Jesus, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered. What does that mean? Well, look, his clothing became dazzling white, and a cloud came over them and overshadowed them. Now think, if you, read, if you know your Bible really well, Think Old Testament. In the Old Testament, when you see the nation of Israel and you see a cloud, it doesn't mean that rain is coming. It's a symbol of the glory of God, the presence of God. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Who's the voice? Who's the voice? Right? It's not somebody in a chair singing a, or with a mask on singing a song. Right? It is what? It is... It's God, it's the Father saying this. Think about the splendor of this. So he, his appearance changed. The curtain's drawn back a little bit, and those who were there got a glimpse into something of who he is. He's glorious. This is, this is actually the opposite of what often happens when we pull back the curtain to look deeper into a personage. You know what I mean? Like there's people that are maybe well-known, or maybe people that you kind of know well, but you get to know them more and more. And maybe you find out there's, there's, there are more flattering things about them than you previously knew. But oftentimes, isn't it true, when you pull back the curtain of someone's life and dig deeper, you also find darkness and what you might call dirt. These exposés sometimes of famous people, we find out very good things about them, but we also find out dark things about them. And the truth is that when you pull back the curtain on any human being, and look into truly more and more of who they are, it's often far less flattering than we ever anticipated. But that's not what happens when you look deeper into Jesus. In fact, the opposite happens. When you, the deeper you look into Jesus, the more you study his person, the more that is revealed to you about him, the more and more and more you find out that he is glorious, he is awesome. He is greater than you originally thought. 
and more wondrous than your mind could have fathomed. This is, this is what's so great about Christmas. It's the glorious person who came. Jesus is this glorious person. That's what Paul means when he says he was rich. He's talking about the eternally glorious and exalted Christ. And that's the first reality I want you to see. Do you know who it is you're worshiping this Christmas? Do you see something in it? Maybe you're like, Ross, I, I mean, I'm hearing you, and I, but I want more of it. Then ask God, ask God sincerely in prayer, the Lord, show me your son. Open my eyes to see more of Jesus this Christmas. That it won't just go through the motions, but that it will be a season of worship and of seeing him with the eyes of my heart and knowing him more and being amazed at his person. Well, that's the first part of the picture we're given here, the first reality that I wanted to show you in verse 9, the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the glorious person. Now, that leads to the second thing, the second reality here, the, the fact that he is a glorious person kind of puts an exclamation mark or double underlines this next thing, namely his gracious action. Jesus is a glorious person. And he took gracious action. That's what the text says, verse 9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, notice, yet for your sake, he became poor. He became poor. He took gracious action, Paul says, in that he became poor. Now, in what sense did Jesus become poor? Well, we could say there's an economic sense. I mean, Jesus was born into poverty, by just sheer human standards. Mary and Joseph were not wealthy. In fact, you read in the Gospels, you read in Luke chapter 2, when they went to worship at the temple, they gave an offering that someone who is poor would offer. Jesus was born into a family that was poor. He was born effectively in a stable amongst animals. That says something about the, the economic poverty. Later in his life, he would say that he had no place to lay his head. Speaks of a homelessness, no, no fixed address, we might say. There is a sense in which he was economically poor, but I don't think that's the poverty mainly that Paul has in mind. See, the subject here is redemption. The broader subject is giving, but in this verse here, he's talking about the redeeming work of Jesus. And Jesus did not redeem by being financially impoverished. No, he redeemed by giving his life taking on flesh, born of a virgin, living a sinless life, and then what? And then dying on the cross. That's the kind of poverty that Paul has in mind here. Look again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Think about what Jesus did. He is the glorious person. And yet he left that place of honor at the Father's right hand and came into a world where he was dishonored. He laid aside his glory in that he took on humanity. And think about that. The glorious one takes on humanity and experiences with it all the trials and troubles that humanity affords. Things like weakness, thirst, hunger, pain. You're like, preacher, you've been following me around this week? Jesus knows. All those infirmities, all those limitations that you so often feel physically, fatigue, those are things he could relate to. Even temptation. We read in scripture of Jesus being tempted. 
he became poor. On that first Christmas, he took on flesh so that on the first Easter, he could give his life as a ransom to save you and me from sin. That's what Paul's talking about here. This gracious action. Jesus became poor. He took on this position and place of humility to rescue us from sin. That's what Paul talks about elsewhere. Think of a passage like Philippians 2, verse 6. Talking about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, that's a statement of his deity. Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or clung on to. But notice, emptied himself. How? By taking the form of a servant. Remember, Jesus came, Jesus said, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, for you, for me. He took on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even, notice, even death on a cross. Jesus Christ, fully God, always has been, always will be, enters into humanity in order to die. He was born to die because, after all, only a person can die for the sins of people, but only a sinless person can pay the penalty for sinners, and Jesus alone qualified. This is what Paul's talking about, his poverty. Remember the song we learned a week ago, if you are here with us a week ago, the song that Pastor Alec taught us, that chorus, it went, miracle of miracles, the king has come to dwell with us. The son of God, the great I am, the king has come to dwell with us. Yes, the king has come to dwell with us. What's that song about? It's marveling at the fact that the glorious one who was rich in glory became poor and dwelt among us to save us and to rescue us. This is his gracious action. Jesus is a glorious person. He also took gracious action, and that is the wonder of Christmas. God himself took on flesh and came into this world. And of course, he did this out of love because this is actually the third piece. The third piece of this, he did this because we were in a grave condition. We were in a, gra- we, we were in a grave condition and that we were impoverished under sin. Paul alludes that here, doesn't he, again in our verse. Look at it again, verse 9. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake, for whose sake? For your sake, for my sake, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. See, we, we were impoverished. The implication here is that we were impoverished under sin. We were in grave condition. But Jesus came to deal with that condition. We, our, our situation was abject spiritual poverty. You may not be poor in the world's eyes by the world's standards. But whether you're poor or not, the reality is, is that every single one of us has a kind of poverty, a kind of debt that there ain't any of us you can get out of it. If you're in debt financially, it can be a crushing load. If, if you, you, right, some of us here in this room, you, you know, maybe you're in it right now or you've been in it, and you know when you're in debt, it can be, I mean, you eat that thing for breakfast, you eat it for lunch, and it tucks you into bed at night. It's just there all the time. You just, you just feel it, and you, you want to get out of it, and it's one of the things, reasons we've got to be wise in, with our finances, right? One of the many reasons is that it's a lot easier to go into debt than it is to get out of it. But there's often this just sort of hope that somehow, some way, someday I'll get out of it. 
Not so when you're impoverished under sin. See, the, the, the penalty for sin is death, your very soul, your very life. There's nothing you have that you can give to rectify it. There's no amount of wealth in the world that can wash away your sin. There's no amount of fame that can raise you from the dead. When you are impoverished under sin, it is a debt that you can't pay and none of us can pay for you even if we wanted to. There is no way out except one, and that's Jesus. And that's what he came to do. We were in grave condition under a crushing debt of sin. We were bound to enslaved under sin. I mean, think about it. Some of you who are in Christ today, you can think back to a time when you didn't even want Jesus. You, you pushed him away. You're like, don't, don't bring this Jesus stuff around me. Don't tell me about sin and God and all this. That'll complicate my life. You didn't even want this. You, there was, for some of you, you were told about salvation and, and offered help, and you, you turned it down because it, was, it was, didn't taste good to you, and you were bittered against it. You pushed it away. Well, now, now you're just rejoicing in God because he opened your eyes to see, I was in serious trouble. And I, not only was this Jesus important, he's necessary. And God did a miracle in your heart to open your eyes to see that I got a serious problem. And Jesus is the only way to freedom and salvation. And praise God, praise God that he opened your eyes. Are you happy about that, that today? Me too. Sin has an isolating effect. It keeps us away from God and from life and from heaven. We were in grave condition and there was no cure. We had an incurable disease save one source of hope. And praise God, that source of hope is sufficient. It's Jesus. And that's why we're so excited about Christmas. Because it's the rescuer has come. The Savior has come. It's also, I should say too, one of the, one of the many things that really marks off Christianity from other religions. Most other religions that I can think of have people in somehow, some way, reaching up to God or themselves striving towards some kind of higher ideal. But Christianity is the reverse. The message of the Bible isn't us reaching up to God and trying to get better and trying to find our way. No, the message of the Bible is the opposite. It's God comes to us. And we see that, I would argue, we see that most clearly in the history of redemption on that first Christmas when Jesus came into the world to people who were in a grave spiritual condition. That was you, that was me. But this is what's so great about Christmas, is that Jesus came, we were in grave condition, and then fourthly, finally, he came to make a great transaction. He came to make a great Transaction. He's this glorious person, and he took gracious action to come to people who were in a grave condition. And what he did for us, when you trust in him, there is a great transaction happens that Paul describes here in our verse. Look at it again. You know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. So think incarnation, think sinless life, think rejection, think murder. He was murdered. Think death, think burial. He became poor so that, here's the transaction, so that you, by his poverty, by what he did, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So the story starts off with you and me impoverished under sin, a debt we can never get out of. 
And Jesus, the glorious one, who reigns and rules over all, is rightly exalted. In love and in an awesome act of grace, he comes into the world that first Christmas, born of the virgin, so that he could live a sinless life that you and I have not lived and die on the cross to pay for our sins so that the one who is rich became poor, so that the one who is poor, you and me, can become rich. This is the greatest transaction you will ever experience in all your life. It's the greatest transaction there is, exchanging poverty for God's riches. Now, of course, maybe it goes without saying, but it's worth saying, the message here is not that God's plan is to make you financially rich. Actually, the reality is, if you read the Bible, and you know much about church history, then there's a really good chance that you won't see much richness in terms of finances at all. But there is a better kind of wealth, a truly better kind of wealth, that when you know Jesus, you have, and you experience now and will experience in fullness forever. You see, being rich in the New Testament has to do with being blessed with every spiritual blessing. Being rich in the New Testament means has to do with having a part in God's eternal kingdom that includes an inheritance that God gives to us. Firstly and foremostly, the person of Jesus Christ. We're given him. And then wonder of wonders, he rewards us in eternity. And Jesus even talks about the fact that his people will inherit the earth. So we get to the end, and there's a new heaven, new earth, the remaking of all things. And it's like God says to his children who once were impoverished under sin, it's all yours. Rich. That's why Revelation 2.9, Jesus says to a really poor church, he says these words. He says, did I have these words? Maybe I didn't. I thought I put them on there. They're not coming. Here's what he says. Here's what he says, believe me. I know your affliction and poverty, but you are rich. I know your affliction and poverty. Think about it. Jesus says, I know. For some of you this morning, you need to hear those words directly. Jesus would say to you this morning, I know your affliction. I know your poverty. But you are rich. This isn't a sort of pat you on the head, participation ribbon kind of there, there. No, no. This is serious real wealth, wealth that lasts beyond the grave. There's wealth that you have, or maybe your friends have, or your uncle has, or you wish you had, that makes life a different kettle of fish now. But here's the thing, you know this, they won't take it with them, and you won't take it with you. They may bury a bunch of your stuff with you in the grave, but that's where it's gonna stay. But what Jesus gives to you and to me is a kind of wealth that the world really knows nothing of, we have acceptance with God, that is wealth. We have an indestructible life, we have treasure in heaven, we are counted righteous by God, and we have friendship with him now and forever, that is wealth. And really there is no greater wealth than that, and dear Christian, if you were in Jesus, you have it, you have it. So you see what's so great about Christmas? It's the story of what God did to pluck us out of spiritual poverty into true riches, and he does it for us in Jesus. That's what's so great about Christmas. Jesus is the glorious person 
who took gracious action in coming into the world to save us from sin because we were in grave condition. But when you trust in him, when you look away from yourself and trust in Jesus, there happens in you a transaction. You don't see it with your eyes, but it's very real. Where you go from being separated from God to now having your sins forgiven and belonging to God and having a purpose in living for him now and a home in heaven forever. That's the great transaction, and that's what's so great about Christmas. Now, before I close, I want to tell you four things. Now, some of you hear that, and maybe you got dragged to church today. You're just here making somebody else happy, and you're quietly thinking to yourself, this is why I hate coming to church. Because the preacher preaches a long sermon, and then he gets to what sounds like the end, and he says he's not done yet. And um, I got lots of sympathy for you. But understand why I'm going to tell you these four things, and it's this. We've thought about these important truths, and they are important, and they are true. But I want to just take a few minutes to address this. In light of these things we've just said, what now do I do? Like, like what do I do with these things? How, how do I respond? Like, where do I put my foot now? So I got, I got four things, four, four things that I want to leave you with, four responses to the realities of what's so good about Christmas. Number one, believe, believe, believe on Jesus. Believe that Jesus is the greatest gift you could ever be given. Another way of, in the Bible of talking about believing is receiving. When you believe on Jesus, there's a real sense that the Bible says in which you receive him. That is, you embrace him as your Savior and your Lord. So when I call on you to believe, if that's foggy or seems abstract to you, then think of this word, receive. Receive him. He's the greatest gift you'll ever be given. You know, when, uh, when I was, my mom tells me that when I was really little, there was one time that she caught me rooting around before Christmas under the Christmas tree, looking at all the gifts, right? I'm sure for a moment she probably thought maybe I was tearing into them, but she saw me doing, comes over and is like, what are, you, what are you doing? What are you looking for? As I'm rooting through all the gifts. And I told her, I'm looking for the R-O-S-S kind. That kind of gift, the R-O-S-S kind, the ones with my name on it. And I'm going to tell you, this is it's not very dignified, but I'm just telling you the truth. I've got to be real with you. Those are still my favorite kinds of gifts. I know the Bible says it's better to give than to receive, but I'm going to tell you when it comes to Christmas, I'm just being honest, I like to receive. I, I like those gifts. It's just something that I am looking for, those R-O-S-S kinds. Okay, you can think less of me, you think ill of me, the curtain's drawn back, I'm not as glorious as you thought I was, there's a lot more that came from, believe me. But here's the reality, and the truth is that there's a few of you here in this room that you and I, we feel the exact same way, and it's okay, you can admit it to me because we get it, it's true, I understand you, you're a good person anyway. When there is a gift with your name on it, what do you do with that gift? You, you take it, you, you open it. If I show up at your house on Boxing Day and there's a gift with your name under, under the tree, I'm gonna be like, what's the matter with you? Now, maybe you're like, well, we celebrate Christmas late. That's different. But what's the matter with you when Christmas is over and they're putting all the decorations away? Do you really have a gift there with your name on it that you haven't opened? Of course you don't. It's, it's for you. So what do you do when a gift is for you? You take it. You receive it. Well, here's the thing. What Paul shows us here in our text today is that Jesus is a gift for you. Look at the text. You don't believe me? Look at what the Bible says. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that though he was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor. Jesus is a gift with your name on it. 
So I would plead with you to receive him, to trust him. And if after the service, you're, that's still foggy for you, I would love to be able to talk with you, explain that more, pray with you. But I would plead with you to receive him. Second, be strengthened. Be strengthened by these things. I wrote down a couple other words too. Encouraged, heartened. I like that word, heartened. It means to have joy. Be built up in the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for you. A major reason that I'm preaching this sermon today is to equip you with a spirit-given view of the greatness of Jesus so that you will keep your eyes on him as you go through whatever it is you're going through. Some of you are going through some things. And my pastoral plea to you would be, as you go through it, keep your eyes on Jesus. Or maybe it's get your eyes on Jesus. The truth is, is that there's often times we go through circumstances where we find it really hard to keep focused on Jesus. And texts like this are given to us, at least in part, to help us overcome that, to see Jesus. The fact is, is that for lots of us, life is not going the way you wanted it. This year has not gone the way you envisioned it. This month is not turning out the way that you thought it would. Some of you are experiencing setbacks, struggles, disappointments, even heartbreak. For some of you, someone you love and care for has failed you. Or maybe you have failed them. And Christmas, for lots of people, even church-going people like your beautiful selves, Christmas for many, is not something you're looking forward to. It's something you are preparing yourself to endure. It's easy for us to be consumed by our circumstances. But dear Christian, dear Christian, my plea to you would be to turn your eyes upon Jesus and look to him. Remember, in the face of your struggle, Jesus is stronger. In the face of your burden, Jesus is bigger. Remember what it is that he has done for you that overrides and overcomes anything that you have done yourself. And look to him with faith, even in the face of misery, knowing that because of him, joy comes in the morning. Look to Jesus. It's a call for the people of God to renew their hope in him. By looking to Jesus. Now listen, this year we took drastic measure to emphasize the importance of hope, did we not? We changed our name to Hope Bible Church. Because hope is a great word. Hope is, we, are, we, we have this hope in Jesus. We're in, we, uh, we are ambassadors of this hope in Jesus. Is why we exist. Is what we exist to do. Is to share the hope and proclaim the hope of Jesus as we hope in him ourselves. And that's my plea for you this morning. Is in the face of whatever it is you're going through. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, like the old song says. So be encouraged, be heartened. Third, be generous. Be generous. Now again, if you don't often come to church, you hear that, and be like, oh yeah, yeah, here it comes, here it comes. Just like the preachers on television, right? Get this whole spiritual thing and then just hold out your hand and ask for money. That's really what it's all about. I assure you that's not what it's all about. In fact, honestly, if you feel that way, please don't give anything. Please, seriously. 
though the call to generosity here is a call to believers who have experienced the generosity of God. And what we see here in our verse is the basis of Christian generosity. That is the generosity of God to us in Christ. God has been generous to us in giving us his son. That's why we're called to be generous to him. And I'll tell you something. Loved ones, brothers and sisters, you have a, you have a reputation for generosity. And you should be encouraged by that. And it is because there is an awareness, there is a belief in the generosity of God toward you. And that's the basis. That's why we give. That's why we give to offerings week to week. That's why we give Christmas offerings. That's why we help each other out in ways that will never elicit a tax return. Be generous with what you have because God has been generous to us. Fourthly, finally, fourthly, finally, treasure this gift of Jesus. Treasure this gift of Jesus. If nothing else, for the people of God, this verse is a call to worship. It's called to worship him. And what we're going to do right now is we are going to worship him in a way that he's given to us through the participation of communion. In just a moment, we're going to take a simple wafer, a piece of bread, and a cup, and we're going to do something with it, way more than just eat or drink. We're going to give glory to Jesus and rejoice in him together through this particular act of worship. And so before we do that, I'm just going to pray, and then we'll transition to our communion. Let's pray.